emptiness, that we have something to look forward to, and that the Savior of the world is coming back for us. And if you knew that you were stranded in a situation and you knew help was on the way, wouldn't you be excited? The Bible tells us not to grieve like those who don't believe, that we have a different way to live, that we carry our heads, and we don't do it so that we can seclude ourselves to, to just take care of ourselves, be doomsday preppers and buy a bunch of canned food and hide out somewhere. We don't do that, but when we know help is on the way, it gives us courage, it gives us excitement, and we want to tell people that don't worry, help is on the way. Can I get anybody just to praise God with me that says help is on the way, that it's not going to end like this, that it's going to get better, that God does have a solution, and I believe it's through the church of the living God. I believe it's through people that God is going to bring solution to this chaos and to this craziness, so... I just want to tell you to keep hanging on, keep holding on, don't give up, and just believe that uh, God is going to show himself strong in the world. I believe that God's the kind of God that says, I win this on the road. I'll put, come back in the fourth quarter. It's fourth down and 40, and guess what? God doesn't punt. We go for it every single time. We throw the Hail Mary or whatever we got to do. To win, I believe that we're on the winning side. Good morning, church. I'm so excited to see every one of your faces. Those who are here for the first time, welcome. I hope you're enjoying yourself and you were treated kindly. There was a beautiful, very attractive woman at the door. I just want to let you know she is taken. So just in case you had any ideas, um, just let that go. But hopefully you were greeted uh, by somebody. And I know you were because the first lady is outside. So I know she did a great job in that. Today's a special day. We are beginning a new series. A new emphasis. I'm so excited about this for seven sermons. I'm going to preach on this particular subject. We still believe. Can you help me real quick and just tell somebody next to you, say, we still believe. Try it on the other side. We still believe. We still believe. And this song that the praise team introduced today is a song we're going to sing as our theme song. How many of you back in the day remember Rocky IV? Y'all remember Rocky IV? It's my favorite Rocky movie. That was when Rocky had to fight the Russian dude. And uh, it was Hearts on Fire. Hearts on Fire. Watch it done in key. Hearts on Fire. Remember that song? Strong Desire. Maybe we make it a worship song. But that was Rocky's theme song. And he had Eye of the Tiger in Rocky II. Uh, Rocky II, Rocky was just an unbelievable Literally unbelievable boxing movie, okay? Nobody can sustain that many blows. But when you heard that song when I was a kid and I watched Rocky Ford, man, I get pumped when I heard that song. So this song by the Newsboys, I pray that you just put it on repeat this week. Just play it every single day and every single hour till we get it in our spirit that we still believe. And I'm going to bring out some things that we still believe as Christians, amen? They're not going away. They're not ever going to change and they're there to give us hope. And so today, I want to talk to you about a dangerous conversation. A dangerous conversation. Can I pray one more time? Lord, thank you so much again for our moment today that we can look in your word. I pray that I'll preach with power and conviction. And for those who are today, here today that really need to know that you have something for them, I pray that you'll speak to them and confirm in them that this word is for them. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 
I'm looking forward to this series. I'm excited about it. And you know I'm excited if I'm wearing a suit coat. And I want to tell you that major, for the majority of the time, I do not wear a suit coat. Um, I don't want you to feel that you have to wear a suit to come to church. You do not have to do that. But today, I said, I'm going to start this off looking pastoral, right? That's pastoral look. A dangerous conversation. A couple of years ago, we were at Convocation, which is a gathering that uh, a lot of our sister churches throughout the Northwest come together once a year, and we celebrate and have a great big worship service in the Seattle area. And I'm in charge of one of the programs there that happens for young adults, uh, kind of that millennial age group. And I remember getting ready. It was a Friday. We were going to start our first service. And it was about an hour before we started. And this guy shows up that I haven't seen in a long time. I know his family. And from what I understood, he hadn't really been going to church for a while or something. So I saw him. I was real excited. And I saw him. Um, and I was greeted him, and we were talking, and he was like, man, it's good to see you. And uh, I noticed he was standing with a few other people that I'd never seen before. He was standing with them, and he says, hey, listen, um, I wanted to talk to you when you get a chance. Now, as a pastor, you hear that all the time. I want to talk to you. Um, it can mean a number of different things. It could be somebody wants to complain about something, somebody wants to tell you something good, whatever it is. So when you hear that, typically as a pastor, you just prepare yourself, don't know what it's going to be. But I said, okay, yeah, let's. Let's, uh, let's get a chance to talk. I'm getting ready to start a service, but maybe uh, tomorrow I have a little better time. It might work. So he said, okay, I want to talk to you something about the Bible. I have a Bible question. I said, okay, at least I kind of know what this might be. Maybe I can prepare for it. We'll see. So next day, he's still around. I notice um, as he's kind of been on campus, he's been around but not really in the meeting. But then he says, he sees me, says, now a good time. I said, great, yeah. So he says, I have a question about something. And he opens up his Bible, and I can tell immediately he has a bunch of things highlighted. And he asks a question to me that if I wasn't careful, I would have got caught off guard. But he, when he asked the question, it began with, do you believe? My, my antennas went up right away. And when he said that, it was a kind of a... Um, a very ambiguous question, a very open-ended kind of question. And I said, well, it kind of depends on what you think. Or it kind of depends on what do you mean. So as I began to dig and the conversation began to develop, I could clear, very clearly see that this was a dangerous conversation, that there was a motive and an intention behind his question. He had belonged and been associated with a religious sect called the Hebrew Israelites. And he was there to cause trouble. He had grown up as an Adventist, and people had known him, and therefore were giving him ear and voice because of their association with him. But as the conversation went out, as he began to unfold some things, he began to get really heated, and the guys around him began to get really amped up. And finally, they went into their discourse and then their points, and I listened to him, but what he didn't realize is that I'm a graduate of Walla Walla University, okay? From the theology department with Dean Dave Thomas. So when he started throwing this stuff out, I don't think he knew that I was prepared for this conversation. Praise God that I was. And so he started throwing some church history out on a brother. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, here we go with this. Finally, it got to the point I said, listen, let me just say this straight up. You just picked the wrong brother to talk to. 
I'm just going to tell you, I respect you guys, but if you want to have a real conversation, this conversation is not about the Bible. This is a conversation about what you want to talk about. And he, one guy tried to push me, and I, I tried to give him a chance. I really did. And then I had to correct him on some Bible history because a brother went to school and a brother paid attention in the church history class, and he wasn't ready for that. And I told him, I said, look, you may throw this on people who don't church history, but I know church history. And you're incorrect. And I said, and furthermore, I'm actually really disappointed in the fact that you would come to this place and do this. Because people here are listening to you because they know you. And you're looking for an opportunity to create a dangerous situation. And I had to look at him without blinking, without pause, and tell him to leave. So you need to leave. You respect people, you need to leave. And I need you to respect, believe, believe. A dangerous conversation. It's interesting how one conversation can change our lives. It's interesting that one conversation, and usually a conversation that's dangerous, doesn't start out the way you think it would. It just starts with something very simple, very polite. You know, I was thinking about this. Or what do you think about that? Usually that's the way gossip begins. When somebody wants to talk about somebody, they say, have you heard that? Fill in the blank. We still believe it's a declaration that we are committed to the true word of God, what God has to say. And one of those things that we believe as Christians and especially as Seventh-day Adventists, for those who want to know what we teach and what we believe, want to understand this, that we look at things as, as the Bible would, would unfold as this battle between God and evil. Now, normally I would say good and evil, but there is a battle that is raging right now in our world, and that battle does not have its genesis on the earth. In other words, it didn't start here, but this battle between good and evil really paints the backdrop and the, and the picture of Scripture, that we know that Jesus not only came for our salvation, but he came for our deliverance, and we believe in Jesus. What it all boils down to is Jesus. We believe in him. We believe he's the son of God. We believe that he is our savior. And so there are people who, without knowing it, some don't know it, some do, that are tearing down what God is building up. And that comes from a place. That comes from something. And what I want to tell you today, what I want you to walk away with today, is that in this battle between good and evil, Jesus always wins. Can I say it again? In the battle between good and evil, Jesus always wins. I want to take you to a dangerous conversation that the Bible shows us. It's found in Revelation chapter 12. And for some of you who have not studied the book of Revelation or understand the book of Revelation, you're scared of it, you think there are beasts and weird things in there, it's really simple. The book of Revelation really is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we get the backdrop, we get the understanding, and we get more about who Jesus is. It was a book that was written by one of Jesus' disciples as he appeared uh, on the island of Patmos, and God's angel began to share with him things that he didn't know. And what it does is it sets up a backdrop and an understanding of the context of Scripture, especially this idea of a battle between good and evil. So I want to take you to this 
conversation, a dangerous conversation. And although the book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible, this particular part of the story is before creation. If you're familiar with the timeline of scripture, you would know that Genesis, the book of Genesis is the beginning, the first book of the Bible, and Revelation is the end. So this particular part that we're going to look at in Revelation, which is really a prophetic book, it's this scene that we're looking at actually begins before Genesis in the way it begins before creation. Now let's look at it. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Here's what the Bible says. There was, can we say this part together? War in heaven. Now I want to stop there for a second because some of us think that if we can just get to the perfect church, just get to the perfect job, just get to the perfect neighborhood, just get cuddled up with the perfect bay, that we would not have any problems. It seems almost unfathomable that war can begin in heaven. I mean, heaven is a perfect place, right? Heaven's a place where there's probably people on the clouds and playing harps. No, that's, that's what people say at times. But this is pre-human heaven. This is still heaven and God is the kind of God who doesn't want people to love him to be by, by force. He's the kind of God, love is always a choice. And so we see a dangerous conversation. Something's happening here in heaven. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angel, angels. And the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Now, again, this scene is before creation. And I wish I had more time to really unpack this. But this devil, this ancient serpent, this one who is clearly described as Satan, was not always Satan. Bible tells us that Lucifer was the highest arcing angel in heaven. He was the one in charge of all the angels. He was beautiful and he was very powerful. And the Bible gives us understanding in the book of Ezekiel what happened to the devil. What happened to Lucifer? He was not always Satan. God did not create an evil being in heaven. But something happened to him. Here's what Ezekiel uh, says in, verse, in chapter 28, verses 14 through 17. Gives us an understanding, gives us a backdrop and a uh, picture of what happened. This is speaking of Lucifer, the one who was in heaven. I ordained and anointed you, the mighty angelic guardian. This is God speaking about him and to him. You had access to the holy mountain of God. You walked among fiery stones. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. you, were, you your rich commerce led to you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, almighty guardian, from the place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and I threw you, sorry, and exposed you to the curious gaze of the kings. Another verse that I don't have on the screen, 
is found in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, two verses there, verse 12 and 14 to 14 says this. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O shining star of the sun of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth. You destroy the nations of the world. Here's where he messed up. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of God, of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heaven. I will be like the most high. He was created with beauty. He was created as the highest of all the created beings at that time. But guess what, church? He was still created. He wasn't God. He was created. Although he was the highest being, he looked different. He was better than everybody else. He was still created. But what happened? He got caught up. He got caught up in his beauty. He got caught up in himself. And what he said was, I will be like the most high. He didn't say it like, I want to be like him. He says like, no, I want to sit in his seat. Because when he looked at himself, he said, look, there's nobody above me. There's nobody. Everybody else is below me. Everybody else is under me. He starts feeling himself. And so as he was literally the praise and worship leader in heaven, when, pe when the angels would praise, he began to feel that praise. When he hit the high note and he hit all these runs, he started feeling himself. And so he thought that he was God. He let himself get in the way. It said that in Ezekiel that pride filled his heart. So here's the first conversation that happened. Not only did pride fill his heart, not only did he begin to say to himself, I don't need God, which is the root of all evil, is when you say, God, I can do it without you. God, I don't need you. I can do this myself. I'm good. I can handle it myself. Not only did he feel that way about himself, but he began to have dangerous conversations. He began to go to other angels. You know what? I'm just saying, like, does God really need all of this? Like, this praise that we're giving him, like, really? This, I mean, it's kind of selfish, if you ask me. He's kind of feeling himself. And over and over again, he began to have some pretty dangerous conversations. And the Bible says that he was able to persuade a large group of angels to follow him. He was able to bring, the Bible says, one-third of the angels on his team. He recruited one-third of the angels to think of it this way. The Bible says that he was thrown to the earth. Where was he thrown? To the earth. That's not good news for us, is it? That this angelic being that is filled with power. And the interesting thing is God didn't take away his power. Again, God is a God of love and of choice. He didn't take away his power, but he did remove him from heaven, and he sent him to earth. And here's the news you need to know. Revelation 12, verse 17 says that the dragon was angry at the woman. Prophetic language describes this as the church, and he declared war against the rest of her children and all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. So not only did this war that began in heaven start in heaven, it was brought to the earth. And the enemy of God, Satan, the dragon, as the Bible says, who hates 
God also hates his people. And so the world is in the middle of a battle, of a struggle. I think it's interesting because as the Bible describes this, it describes that sin was found in his heart. You got to understand that while everything was perfect around him, in his heart was a struggle. In his heart was found sin. And that's where we are fallen beings and that in our hearts we have an issue. James 1.15 says, and remember, 13 through 15 says, remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone. That's got to be good news for you, that God's not trying to trip you up. God's not God up, you know, up in heaven with some big button that he's ready to shock you and kill you. He's not looking for you to make a mistake. He's not trying to make you fall. Look what the Bible explains what happens. Temptation comes from our own desires. Our own desires. The place in our heart where there's something that is not of God that is a desire for us. In other words, we have a taste for something. Some of you have a proclivity. That's just a big word for taste. That you have something that didn't even come from you. It came from your daddy, from your mama, from your grandma, from your granddad. It was a dysfunction, a cycle of dysfunction in your family that you have inherited and that has not been broken in your life. And that temptation, that desire, that leniency, your tendency to be drawn to this is where temptation comes from. Then it says, which entices us, in other words, gets our attention and then drags us away. You have a natural pull to something. You have a natural desire for something that's not of God, and it entices you. It gets your attention. Hey, I'm over here, right? And then it drags you in. The Bible says these desires give birth to sinful actions. In other words, when you're drug in and you follow that desire, then you make an action. You do something about it. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. It starts in the heart. For Satan, it started in his heart. And that first thought of, man, you know what? I should do this. I should do that. You know what? I should do this. And that began to grow into action where now he has taken one-third of the angels to the earth. And now we've got a problem. Look what the Bible says. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows it? Do you know that your heart is deceitful? Let me say it this way. Do you know that your heart plays tricks on you? You got to be careful. Oh, you loved that man, didn't you? Oh, he was so fine. He was so kind. She was so good looking. And you know what? Your heart was telling you, this is the right one for me. Yeah, we're going to make this official. I'm going to put a ring on this. And what happened? Three months later, Somebody said, uh-oh, there was problems. The heart, if it's not cleansed by God, if it's not fixed, will deceive you. Your heart is not to be trusted if it's not filled with God. And that's what God asked for. He says, let me into your heart, the seat of your heart, your mind, the place of your affection, where you make decisions. He says, let me into your heart. And I can make a change. Sin was found in his heart. Can I ask you a question? 
What is your heart telling you? What is your heart saying to you? Because that's really the struggle for the believer, that we believe this, but our heart's telling us this. We look at these current events, and we look at violence, and we look at racism, and we look at hatred, and we look at natural disasters, and our, 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 heart sa- our mind says, well, we believe in this, but our heart says, you should be afraid. You should go buy more guns. You should go run and hide. You should cuss this person out. Watch this. You should post this on Facebook. You should say something. You should put your foot down. You should never talk to them again. Our hearts are deceitful. And what God is trying to teach us today is that Jesus always wins. So what happens then? Satan falls in heaven. He goes to the earth. Now, you would think that God's like, all right, Satan's and his angels, those who fell, they're on earth. I ain't going to worry about them. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to turn my back on that. I'm just going to leave him in jail. I'm going to do my thing. But the Bible says, in the beginning of the Bible, the very first verse says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, God says, I'm going to do something beautiful. I'm going to create something, and I'm going to create it in a place where my fiercest enemy is. Does that make sense to you? Just think about somebody who's completely against you. And you're saying, guess what? Not only do you despise me and I despise you, I'm going to move in with you. God says, love wins. My principles win. And guess what? I'll win it on the road. I'll take this show on the road. And so God makes a decision that he's going to create something beautiful. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that he creates this earth. He begins to put things together, set things in order. He creates stars. He creates all these beautiful beings. The Bible tells us that he creates a man and a woman, and he puts them in the earth. So something happens, though, that's very painful and difficult. Here's in Genesis Chapter, uh, chapter 3. God, I'm just doing this in a quick version. God creates man and, earth, man and woman. He puts them in the earth. He tells them, I want you to have dominion over the earth. I want you to basically take what I've created, this version of heaven, and I want you to subdue it. I want you to be in charge of it, and I want you to grow, and I want you to multiply. But he knows that the serpent is still in the garden. He knows that the serpent is still in the earth. In fact, God tells him, listen, I want, I, I want you to enjoy yourself, but there's one simple rule. I've got this tree in the middle of the garden, and I don't want you to eat from it. Now, remember the verse we read, that God's not the one tempting you, right? He's not trying to trip you up. He's not trying to mess you up. But what he does is he puts a tree in the middle of the garden. It's not going to catch him off guard. It's not that they're going to be walking somewhere and stumble upon it and mess up. It's going to be right in the middle where everybody can see it. He tells them, don't eat that from that tree. Here's the second difficult conversation. The Bible says the servant, serpent was the shrewdest of all the animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, he said, did God really say you must not eat 
from the fruit of any trees in the garden. Here comes Satan again, questioning, starting a little mess, just saying, hey, you know that thing God said about that? Is that really true? Here's the deep thing about it, because the way that the biblical record shows it is that God created Adam first. And the Bible makes it, makes it clear that God gave instructions to Adam, and then Adam shared in, uh, instructions with Eve about the garden. And so really, he wasn't just questioning what God said, but he was questioning what Adam said. Can you trust your husband? Can you trust that man that God gave you? So he says, did he really say? Did he really say that? Of course we may eat the fruit of the tree. She knows. In the garden. It's just the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. God says you can't eat it. If you touch it, you're going to die. She knows the truth. She knows the word. What happens? Serpent lies to her. He says, you won't die. He says, you won't die. He plants this seed that says, God's not telling you the truth. You can't trust God. Can I tell you that some of you have heard that lie, that you can't trust God. You've heard some lie that God said he's mean and he's, he's evil and he doesn't want to help you and he's just angry at everything you do. And that's not true. The enemy tries to paint a picture of God that's not true. And he says, you're not going to die. God's not telling you the truth. You got to believe otherwise. He says, God knows that when you open your eyes, that this fruit will open your eyes and, and you'll eat it and you'll be like God. Remember, that was his thing, right? He said, I want to be like God. But the problem was, when you're like God, you can't handle what God handles. You can't deal with what God deals with. You can't understand the problem and the chaos and this conflict that is being stretched out. You're not able to handle that. And so he lies to her, and the woman was convinced. What did it say? She saw that the tree was beautiful and fruit looked delicious. And she wanted its wisdom. She was led by her desire. She was led by what she saw. She was led by what she thought. Here's the thing, though. Adam's not off the hook because look what the Bible says. Then she took it, she ate it, and she gave to her husband who was with her. We're not putting this on Eve because Adam was there, too. Adam didn't say nothing. He didn't stand up. He said, oh, put that down. He didn't punch the, you know, the snake in the eye or something like that or put him in a chokehold. He didn't do any of that. He just sat there and just ate it like a dumb, okay, I'll eat some too. But see, that's what the enemy does. He wants to divide and conquer, split, get you to question, and he ate it. The Bible says at that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame and nakedness. See, that's what God didn't want them to experience. It's like some of you, when your innocence was taken, when you were exposed to something too young, when you weren't supposed to, when you drank that, when you were with that person, and you did something, and you were way too young, and now the rest of your life, you're messed up because you smoked that, you drank that, you did that, and your innocence was taken, and your eyes were open. Wasn't that God didn't want them to be like him. They were already like him. The Bible says he made them in their image. Couldn't get any better. But their eyes were open. So look what they did. They sewed fig leaves together. They were naked. They were ashamed. But you know what? Fig leaves 
They don't last, do they? And that's what happens. We, when we know we're, we, we're messing up, we know we're in a place we shouldn't be, we try to put these garments together. We try to mask ourselves with stuff that doesn't last. And God knows. Here's one of the most beautiful things in the Bible. Verse, thir- verse 9 says, then the Lord called to the man. Where are you? This is a dangerous conversation. Because God knows where they are. He can see them. They're ashamed. They're broken. They're messed up. They've made a mistake. God is asking, where are you? He's not asking a question that he doesn't know. He's not asking something just to trick them. He's saying to you, he's saying to them, excuse me, where are you in here? But this is what I love about God. Because the Bible says in verse 8, I didn't put verse 8 up. But when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the wife heard the Lord walking in the garden. God shows up for his normal appointment. He knows they messed up. He knows they made a mistake. But God goes looking for them. And he says, where are you? John, my last verse, John uh, verses, what do we, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 says, Who, anyone who sins is breaking God's law, and all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there's no sin in him. Can I just put you in the story that the mistakes that you made, the sin that's in your life, that God is walking in the cool of the day, that he is looking for you. He's asking the question, where are you? He knows where you are, but he's saying your heart is messed up. Your heart is broken, but guess what? I'm looking for you. I'm seeking after you. I'm running after you. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm coming to find you. I win. My love always wins. I am going to win this fight. So the Bible promises that Jesus came to take away our sins. He's not waiting for us to come to him. He's pursuing us because there's no sin in him. Look what the Bible says. Anyone who continues to to live in him will not sin. Anyone who keeps sinning does not know him or understand who he is. God is trying to remove it. Look what he says. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God, look at this, here's the hope. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to read that again. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. I think I need to read it one more time. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So the dangerous conversation is God says, I know you messed up. I know you're, you're in this place and you don't even realize what you've done. But guess what? I'm asking the question, where are you? And it's a dangerous conversation because let me tell you something. 
When you listen to the voice of God, when you give God a chance, your life will change and you'll become a dangerous person. It's a dangerous conversation to surrender to him because he says, I want to restore your life. I want to bring you back. There is nothing you've done that is too difficult for me. There's no place that you are that's too hard for me to fix. I can do this. In fact, I've come in the flesh. I've died on a cross for your sins to bring you a solution. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. I understand. I feel it. I know what it feels like to have those drugs in your veins. I understand it. I took your sin. I took your pain. But you got to understand, I still want you. I'm not throwing you away. I'm committed to you. So God wants to have a dangerous conversation today. He wants to ask you, do you still believe in me? Will you let me in your heart understand that this great controversy, this great conflict is not just lived out in space. It's not just lived out in the unseen world. It's lived out in your heart. And God wants to be victorious. So this is what's going to happen. We're going to sing a few lines of this song, and then I'm going to come back and pray for you. And I'm going to ask that some of you today make a decision to let God into your heart. Because if you're like me, your heart can be deceiving you. Your heart can tell you you're really doing better than you are. And sometimes your heart can be telling you you're doing worse, but you're actually doing better than you are. Let's sing two lines of this song, and then I want to pray for you. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And he's coming back again. Let the lost be found and the dead be raised in the here and now. Let love invade. Let the church live loud. Our God will save. We believe. We believe. And the gates of hell will not prevail for the power of God has torn the veil. Now we know your love will never fail. We believe, we believe, we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And he's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And he's coming back. He's coming back again. He's coming back again. I want to ask that your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Just might be somebody here today that is hearing maybe for the first time that God hasn't given up on you. He hasn't thrown you away. His decision for you is that I'll, I'll, I've done everything, and I'll do even more to save you. So maybe today somebody just needs to believe again. Maybe they've been believing the wrong thing, believing the lies 
in your heart, believing things people have told you, that you weren't good enough, that you won't make it, that you're bound for hell. But God wants to tell you something different today. And maybe you're in this place today, you're just saying, God, I want to just give you a chance. I just want to give Jesus an opportunity to be the Lord of my life. I want to ask you to do something brave if that's you. While everybody's eyes are closed, nobody's looking at you, just raise your hand in the air if that's you. You're just saying today, I see your hand. God bless you. You're just saying today, Jesus, I want to give you a chance. God bless you. Always sees your hand. I want to pray for you. Father God, I pray that you be with those who have raised their hand. They're saying, God, they need you. Make it real for them today. Let them know that you forgive them and you love them and you haven't given up on them. And that you pour out all of heaven, that you're willing to enter the fight on their behalf. May they believe this week that you are with them, that you are guiding them. May you bring them to a church, maybe not this church, but whatever church that you're calling them to, that you would bring them around people that will love them and care for them and give them the strength to know that you're with them. And before we close this prayer, I just want to say that as we say amen, that the Bible says that heaven is rejoicing. So if you raised your hand, you're going to hear a whole bunch of people going crazy and yelling and shouting. And what they're doing is celebrating the miracle that just happened. They're celebrating with you. And so as we say amen, don't be alarmed, but there's a bunch of people that are going to shout and get up on their feet and clap and victory and celebrate the decision that you just made. And so Jesus, thank you so much for those decisions. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate the fact that lives have been changed. Come on, hearts have been fixed. Come on, people are doing, making their lives better. They are turning themselves around. God bless you. Congratulations. We still believe. We still believe.